God's world and God's creation. God's mission is God's redemption within history of God's world and God's creation. For our purposes, I would suggest the mission of God is is this. To glorify himself by redeeming a people through the Father sending the Son, the Son suffering and dying, in the unity and power of the Spirit. That the mission of God is to glorify himself by redeeming a people through the Father sending the Son, the Son suffering and dying, in the unity and power of the Spirit. That's the mission of God. God is redeeming a people through him for himself through the Lord Jesus Christ in the unity of the Spirit. We know that God made the world to display his glory. This was the sermon I preached a couple weeks ago, and I can't recapitulate all that here, so go back and listen. But establishing that point, that God created everything for his own glory, is crucial to understanding the point that I'm making right now. So take my word for it if you haven't listened to it. If you have listened to it, you know that God made the world to display his own glory. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 through 2 says, When God created him, man, he created them male and female in his likeness. Isaiah 43, 7 says that everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God says he made everybody and he made everybody for his glory. He made you. You exist today. There's breath in your lungs right now because God made you for his glory. To magnify something in himself is why God made you. We also know that the scriptures tell us that God shares his glory with no other. I am the Lord, Isaiah, he says in Isaiah. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. We also know that our purpose is to glorify God. Psalm 50, verse 23 says, The one who offers thanksgiving, thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whatever you do, whether you eat or whatever you, or you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. 2 Thessalonians 1.11 says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for every good and faithful work by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. So it's clear, it's clear that God is after his own glory and that you and I were created to glorify him. But I said that our mission, the the mission of God is to glorify himself by redeeming a people through the father sending the son, the son suffering and dying in the unity and power of the spirit. So all these other things glorify God, but the pinnacle of his glory is the glory of his grace. The pinnacle of his glory is his saving, redeeming, and restoring acts. That's the pinnacle of his glory. The thing that magnifies God the most and makes him great and beautiful and awful in our eyes is that he's a redeeming, saving, restoring God. His glory is not supremely seen when we behold the cosmos. His glory is not supremely seen when we stand on top of angels' rest and behold the gorge. 
His glory is not primarily and ultimately seen when we drive to the coast and watch the sunset over Haystack Rock or beholding his power in the Tetons. His glory is most clearly seen when we behold the face of Jesus Christ. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says so perfectly, when we behold God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The glory of his grace. The apostle will tell us, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts, giving us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The mission of God is to redeem the world, to glorify himself by redeeming a people for himself. By the Father sending the Son, the Son suffering and dying for us in the unity and power of of the Spirit. That's the mission of God. That's what God is doing in this world. That's what the entire Old Testament is about. It is about calling a people out for himself. Calling a people out to display his radical, lavish grace and mercy towards sinners. That is what Jesus' work on this earth was to show and to display. God's redeeming act of saving a people for himself. You sitting here today is a display of God's glory, the glory of his grace. You're sitting here today because the Lord Jesus Christ came, suffered, and died for you, poured out his spirit upon you, changed your heart, converted you, gave you a new heart, gave you a new understanding, gave you new affections, so that you're sitting here now and you're uh, awfully inspired by who he is. That's his doing. It glorifies him. It shows him as great and wonderful and to be cherished and to be loved and to be treasured above all else. That is the mission of God. So what's the mission of the Christian, point two? Let me just reveal my cards here a bit. The point that I'm trying to make, one of the points that I'm trying to make here is that the mission of God is distinct from the mission of the Christian and that the mission of the Christian is even distinct from the mission of the church. To be sure, the mission of the Christian and the mission of the church are subsumed under the mission of God. But the mission of God is broader and belongs to God alone. Your job is to not redeem the world through your son. (laughs) That's not your job. God is the one who is redeeming the world through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. God's mission is to redeem the world. Our text this morning The Great Commission, the last five verses in the Gospel of Matthew. And they talk about, Jesus says here in verse 18, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. But this idea of the Lord Jesus' authority doesn't just show up to us in the last two verses of the entire book. Matthew's not just pulling a fast one and saying, and by the way, all authority has been given to Jesus. The entire book of Matthew is all about how Jesus has all authority. He teaches, he has authority to teach on the Sermon on the Mount. He has authority over creation in his miracles and healings. He has authority over the devil, rebuking in the wilderness, rebuking Peter, binding the strong man. He has authority over death, 
rising from the dead on the third day. He has the authority to forgive sins. He has authority over the church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. All authority belongs to Jesus. His final words, all authority has been given to me, is a summation of the entire point of the book of Matthew. At the transfiguration, the father opens the heavens and speaks and says, listen to my son. He's the one that has authority. And these final words come at the end of his demonstration of power and authority over everything. And he says, this is what, he says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. The mission of the Christian is simply this. The mission of the Christian is to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. To love our neighbors as ourselves. To love God above all else. To forsake everything to follow Jesus. To turn the other cheek when wronged. To forgive. To bear. To pray. To worship. To not love money. To not worry about your future. To mourn. To be meek. To be a peacemaker. To care for the poor. To care for the widow. To care for the downtrodden. To love your enemy. To meet needs around you. To stay sexually pure. To not be angry with your brother, to be merciful, and so on and so on. The Christian, the mission of the Christian is to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The task of the Christian is to radically bring everything in your life under his rule and lordship. Every last square inch of your life belongs to him. Your thoughts your money, your grudges, your dreams, your aspirations, your attitude, everything is his. And your task for the rest of your life is to bring everything under his good and loving care. There's something specific in this text though as well that you're commanded to do and that is to testify, to proclaim, to go and tell the good news of Jesus Christ. is part of the first category of obedience. But it seems to need special attention for a moment. You don't redeem the world. God does. What we do, my friends, is we testify. We proclaim. We go and tell what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We're witnesses to these things, the scriptures say. One point And I think this is an important point, rather, when we come to think about what the church is, because too often, I would suggest, these categories uh, at times get collapsed, and kind of everything is applied to all of these categories. But the mission of God is distinct from the mission of the Christian, it is distinct from the mission of the church. God is the one who's saving the world. God is the one that's redeeming the world through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And our job is to go and tell, to be witnesses, to proclaim the things that we have tasted and seen ourselves. There are categories of commands that are given to us and every command uh, isn't to be applied uh, by every institution by that I mean there's commands that are given to us as, as individuals and Christians. I mean, 
Paul tells us in Corinthians that uh, we're commanded to not deny our spouse's sex. It's impossible for the church to fulfill that command. Okay. Conversely, the church is commanded to put out unrepentant members. The individual Christian can't do that. The point is simply that we need to think, and and I encourage you to think critically when thinking about the scriptures, and think critically about commands or our categories when we apply these things. So then, what is the mission of the church? What is the mission of the church? A great resource, a great book on this topic is a book called, What is the Mission of the Church? (laughs) And it's by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert, and... uh, I reread it this week, and they say it perfectly on page 62. They say the mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit, gather these disciples in churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and into eternity to the glory of God the Father. The mission of the church is to make disciples, to gather them into churches, and to teach them to obey and to worship gather disciples, make disciples, gather them into churches, teach them to obey and worship. That's the Great Commission. That's simply what the Great Commission is to us. Now, there are things I would suggest at times uh, can distract us from what the Great Commission uh, actually is or what our job as the church actually is. Uh, One place that is commonly looked to is Luke chapter 4. Verse 16 through 21, this is where the Isaiah scroll is opened. And what the Lord says here is often applied to mean that the mission of the church is to go, uh, well, let me read it to you. Isaiah, excuse me, Luke chapter four says, and he came to Nazareth, he is Jesus. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, quote, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now some would suggest that based on what Jesus has given us in the Isaiah scroll here is that the mission of the church is maybe to serve the poor. Or the mission of the church is to be primarily concerned with social justice or social concerns. What I would suggest that that misses two critical aspects to this text. First, it overlooks the actual verbs that Jesus uses when he reads the Isaiah scroll. They're predominantly proclamation verbs. To proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, except just one, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And I would suggest if you look at Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, you see that he doesn't actually physically do very many of these except proclaim. He doesn't actually change people's socioeconomic status. He doesn't actually go somewhere and free people from prison who are captives. Instead, what he does is he proclaims. He proclaims that good news has come. 
He doesn't come to necessarily change individual circumstances in the moment. He comes to proclaim a message that God has come to rescue and to save his people. Now, certainly I'm not saying, certainly I'm not saying that the church or Christians ought not be engaged in social change. They should and we ought. But the primary mission of the church is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and to make disciples. That that's the primary mission of the church. That's the task that has been given to us and to us alone. Is to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, to gather people into churches, and to teach them to worship and to obey. And as we teach people to obey, and as we teach one another to obey, we will go do those things as Christians, as disciples who are scattered throughout the week. But as we gather as a people... And we gather together, our mission is to make disciples, to teach us to obey, to teach us what the Lord's commandments actually are to us, and then they go scatter and to go be Christians. The mission of the church and the mission of the Christian are distinct to some degree in nature. If you flip through the book of Acts, you can see that this is what the disciples were doing, that they are testifying, that they're witnesses to these things, that they're proclaiming, that they're going, and they're telling. That's what Paul and Barnabas do. They go to Lystra, and they tell, they testify, they proclaim. They go to Philippi, and they testify, and they proclaim. They go to Ephesus, they go to Antioch, they go to Cyprus, they go to Athens, they go to Berea, they go to Corinth. And constantly what they're doing is they're telling, they're testifying, they're proclaiming what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for them in their place and on their behalf. They're making converts. People are repenting of their sins and they're turning to faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're bearing witness. What's Paul doing? It says that Paul bears witness before Felix. It says that Paul bears witness before Agrippa. And then he goes to Rome. And the very last verse in the book of Acts said that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's the last verse in the book of Acts. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus. And it should come to your mind, Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 says that you, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you. To Jerusalem, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And by the time we get to the closing of the book of Acts, Paul's in Rome, which would effectually have been the ends of the earth. The reformers actually thought, wrongly I think, some of them thought that the Great Commission was actually fulfilled by the apostles because how radically the church moved in the book of Acts. I think they were wrong, but they, you can understand why they thought that. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we, let me just unpack this under three categories as we think about that mission statement that Kevin DeYoung gave to us, that we make disciples, we gather them into churches, and we teach them to worship and obey. Make disciples, gather to churches, and teach them to worship and obey. But the first is, is, is this sub-point called, that I just call structure. There's structure to the local church. I think it's remarkable to look at the book of Acts and to see a dual dynamic of organic movement and organizational development. That there's this dual um, dynamic 
of organic movement and also organizational development. The life of the church in the book of Acts is described in very organic language. Several times throughout, the, 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 throughout the Acts, we're told that the disciples, they increased, they grew, or they spread. Acts 4 says that many who heard the word believed, and the number came to about 5,000. Acts 6.1 says, now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number. It's organic type language. The disciples are increasing. Acts 9.31 says that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace as what was being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord and multiplied. So words like increase, grow, multiply. One of my favorite verses is Acts 19.20. It says that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So it's organic type language here. The church does not grow like other organizations grow. It doesn't grow like a business grows. It doesn't grow like a sports team grows with acquisitions and trades and mergers and so on. The church grows when the word of God reaches listeners in the power of the spirit. That's how the church grows. When the word of God organically moves through cracks and crevices and places and workplaces and homes and neighborhoods and network associations that you have, the word of God moves through those places and it reaches listeners in the power of the spirit. That's how churches grow. And the biblical language suggests that it's that kind of organic movement at work. But here's the other point. I said that it's organic movement and organizational development. Even within this kind of spontaneous growth, when the word makes new believers, Paul is very careful to form them into local churches. He's very careful as disciples are organically being made, increasing, multiplying. Paul is very careful to form these new disciples into local churches. He appoints leaders with authority in every town before he leaves. Acts 14, 23 says, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with fasting and prayer, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. From the beginning, the church has been an organism and it has been an organization. It has been an institution and it has been a movement. And both are necessary for us. Both are necessary for us. We ought to see that that's the way that the word goes out. It goes out in this organic sort of nature that when you scatter from this place, that's why we give you a benediction at the end of this service. We commission you afresh to go be disciples of the Lord Jesus. To go be in the networks and the relationships that you have. In your families. In your social networks. At your workplace. In your neighborhoods. And speak and proclaim and bear witness to the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the spirit moves, he applies that to people's lives and hearts. And he makes converts. It's God who's redeeming the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your job is to simply testify and proclaim and go and tell. And as that happens, my friends, we gather people into local churches. It's been the way that it's been from the very beginning. That's structure. Now the reason, sub-point number two, is build up. There's many images. There's many images that, uh, well, there's not many. There's probably uh, 
three to five images that the New Testament gives us for the local church. There's, there's, there's the body, uh, there's a, a wall, uh, there's a house, there's a household, there's family. And one of the words that's consistently used um, in the New Testament for what Christians do when they gather is the word build up, oikodemeo in the Greek. Simply needs to, it, 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 it goes with the language of building a house. It's a construction term, actually. And it's the word that we translate edify or build up. And as Christians gather together, 1 Thessalonians says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. 1 Corinthians 14 says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. That's that word, it's building like a household. And the aim here, my friends, the aim here is a level of maturity. Paul says in Colossians 1.28 that he strives with all his energy to present every person mature in Christ. Peter says that you yourselves are stones that are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the idea here is building something up. The idea is edifying. And as Matt so wonderfully preached last week, that that's the task that we have to one another. That we do that by encouraging and admonishing and speaking to one another. And the text even goes further in Colossians 3.16 that we even do that by singing. We sing and it edifies the people around us. It builds them up. It's actually being used to mature people in their faith in Jesus Christ. And my friends, I have a lot of friends over the years who have uh, very much just put off the idea of the local church, that the church is sort of expedient uh, or it's unnecessary uh, to the life of the Christian. You've heard people say, "You, you, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That really doesn't make any sense whatsoever. If someone asked me, do you have to go to church to be a Christian? I don't even know how I would answer. It's like saying, do you have to have parents to be a child? (laughs) I think so. The church is absolutely central to what God is doing in your life. All these verbs of building up, of edifying, of admonishing and teaching, you can't do by yourself. You were never meant to have Lone Ranger Christianity with you, Jesus, and, your, and, and, and the Bible. It was never meant to be that way. From the very beginning, when we see massive and rapid, spontaneous, organic growth, Paul puts people in churches. He puts people in churches. He puts leaders and authority over them to teach them, to bring order to things. That's what Paul tells Timothy and Titus to do. These young pastors that are going to these cities in Ephesus and and places. He says, set things in order. And the structure is helpful and necessary even for us, my friends, that we might build one another up. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit Gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. That's how we fulfill the Great Commission. So a few implications for us as I bring it home for us. One, 
is that we as a local church should have a priority in our efforts of evangelism in church planting. We should have a priority in church planting because the way that disciples are made is by starting new local churches in places in the city and places in the state and places around the country and around the world where there isn't a witness of Jesus Christ. It's the most, I'm convinced it's the most effective way to obey the Great Commission is to send out people to go start new churches where they can edify one another and they actually have the structures in place to teach people to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. See, the Great Commission isn't just to make converts. The Great Commission is to make disciples. The Great Commission isn't just to make converts. The Great Commission is to make disciples. And God's ordained institution under the sun to make disciples is the local church. Where people are gathered with a structure of elders and deacons and authority and teaching and preaching and edification and singing and the administration of the Lord's Supper and baptism, that's the way disciples are made. So we as a local church, as the gathering church, ought to have a priority in our mission as a local church towards church planting. And second, I would suggest that our mission in evangelizing our neighborhoods, our city, our country, should be the same here as it is there. We didn't send John and Laura to go dig wells in India. We sent John and Laura to Lucknow, India to go make disciples and to plant churches. That's the priority. I'm not saying these other things aren't important, but the primary mission of the church is to make disciples. One author put it like this. It says, it's not the church's responsibility to right every wrong or to meet every need. Though by God's grace, we will do some of both. It is, however, our responsibility alone to proclaim the gospel. That alone has been given to us as Christians and as the local church. Second, as an encouragement to you, you are obeying the great commission when you lead a community group. You are obeying the Great Commission when you serve in the children's ministry. You are teaching disciples to obey everything that Jesus commanded. You are obeying the Great Commission when you sit at your kitchen table and you instruct your children. You are making disciples to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. My friends... This is just somewhat of a side note, and it's somewhat of a, just a pastoral concern, a pastoral heart concern of sorts. There is a temptation, I think, for us to think it's our job to save the world. That there's this low-level guilt that many of us deal with. Like, we're not doing enough. And on the one hand, it's a God-given impulse, We see the broken world around us and our heart breaks and our heart yearns for it. And yet at the same time, my friends, it is not our job to redeem the world. It is not our job to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. The Lord Jesus says, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. It's the Lord Jesus' job. It's God the Father's job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to save the world. I just want to be an encouragement to you that some of you live with this low-level guilt that you're just never doing enough. And it's true. It's a healthy balance to live a wartime lifestyle. 
to live a radical life as um, David Platt said and as John Piper says. Those are absolutely true and that needs to be held in tension with what the apostle says to endeavor to live a peaceful and quiet life. Let me close with this. This is a J. Gresham Machen. He's in the midst of um, the modernist controversy, which is a controversy that was in the 1920s and 30s when uh, Christianity was becoming very liberal and many were rejecting uh, the God of the Bible and the incarnation of Jesus. And he was asked, what is the mission of the church? And he says it pretty perfectly. So I'm just going to close with this as we remember that it is our responsibility alone to proclaim the gospel. He says, the responsibility of the church in this new age is the same as its responsibility has been in every age. It is to testify that this world is lost in sin, that the span of human life, all the length of human history, is an infinitesimal island in the awful depths of eternity, that there is a mysterious, holy, loving God, creator of all, upholder of all, infinitely beyond all, that he has revealed himself to us in his word and offered us communion with himself through the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is no other salvation for individuals or for nations save this, but that this salvation is full and free, and that whoever possesses it has for himself and for all others to whom he may be the instrument of bringing it a treasure compared with all the kingdoms of the earth, all the wonders of the starry heavens as the dust of the street. An unpopular message is, is an impractical message we are told, but it is the message of the Christian church. Neglect it and you will have destruction. Heed it and you will have life, life everlasting. Let us pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word here. We pray, Lord, that we would obey and fulfill the great commission, that we would make us disciples, and that we would gather them into churches, and that we would teach them to obey and to worship. Help us, Lord. We need your spirit to lead us and guide us and to build your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a wonderful opportunity this morning uh, to participate in a baptism. And what a baptism is, is a baptism is someone's public identification with Jesus Christ. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. And uh, it's a great time to do a baptism after preaching on the Great Commission, because this is part of making disciples, helping uh, Owen to publicly identify uh, with Jesus Christ and to identify with the church and now our task is to welcome him into uh, membership, as in, into our number, and to continue to disciple him. So we're going to actually read a um, public confession of faith here. This is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. And this is just a place in the New Testament where the apostle lays out for us uh, a great doctrine of baptism. So we're going to read this in unison together. This is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Amen.